Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Today's podcast is with Zach Bradford, the CEO of CleanSpark. CleanSpark is a publicly traded Bitcoin mining company. They are valued today publicly at around $150 million, and they're one of the top five largest Bitcoin miners out there. We talked about how he built his business, how they have transitioned largely from an energy company to a Bitcoin mining company. How they think about energy production, the challenges in the grid, nuclear power regulation and technology. We touched on a bunch of different topics in this conversation, all centering around energy and crypto. I learned a lot and I hope you do as well. Here is Zach Bradford. Well, Zach, thank you for joining the podcast today. I'm really excited to chat with you more. One of the things I found interesting about your background and and the company was you went for an IPO at a relatively small listing. I want to talk to you maybe first about that strategy, but before we go into it, just give a kind of set the foundation for what CleanSpark is and we'll branch off from there. Awesome. Well, hey, first, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So yeah, I'm I'm the CEO of CleanSpark. CleanSpark, we are a Bitcoin mining company. We have about a little over four X a half right now of total processing power. So, you know, our goal is to be amongst top fives. And, you know, as you mentioned, maybe I can get into a little bit of, you know, how we got our start. We, we got our start as an energy company. That's ultimately what got us to where we are today. And, you know, in our early days, all the way back in 2014, we were focusing on a waste to energy strategy. So we're working with some universities and, you know, our goal was to, you know, change the world. And, you know, our, our, the hope was to provide a cleaner, better way to manage, you know, power or to create power with waste as opposed to other. As we built into that, you know, it was originally friends and family money. We, we took it public on an over-the-counter exchange. We were very small. But it was a mechanism in which to continue to kind of stay the path, raise some money, kind of organize the company a little more tight, tightly. In, during that period of time, we ultimately ended up acquiring a software company in the energy space and really focused on renewables. So kind of moved away from waste to energy. So think of solar, batteries, resiliency. So we were focusing on the microgrid space, working with the military, working with data centers. And that's actually what was my first exposure into the Bitcoin space. Went to a data center to talk to them about an energy project. Unbeknownst to me, when I walked in, they were Bitcoin mining. So obviously a lot of questions I had about how they were managing energy, what that energy turned into. 
And, you know, at the time, I hadn't thought too much about Bitcoin. I can't even say I was truly a skeptic as much as it just wasn't really on my radar. But what was on my radar is energy and trying to drive value from energy. And one of the issues you have in the renewable space or energy in general is when you're doing projects like WeWork, you're selling savings. And if you're a company that's trying to make money and be profitable, well, if you're selling savings, then you're kind of, it's a race to zero. You just got to be cheaper than the next guy. And realizing that there was this world out there to really create better energy abundance, which is what we were trying to do. Abundant energy, resilient energy. You know, I became a big believer that Bitcoin is the answer to the question. It was the intersection point to make that, you know, not only the dream of abundant power there, but also to create something that would provide stability in the macro grid space, because we were focusing on micro grids to do that. And you can do it all with Bitcoin. So, you know, took me, you know, about six months to be fully orange filled, but, you know, then walked into the boardroom and I, I, you know, we were doing $20 million a year, roughly on track for that. I'm in the energy space and to say, Hey, we have a great business. We're doing good things, but I think we can do something bigger and better. And, you know, over the last almost two years, two and a half years, we focused a hundred percent and, you know, we've invested about $500 million into Bitcoin mining since to be, I think we fall about numbers, number three, as far as maybe number four, as far as Bitcoin produced on a monthly basis and actual active half rate. So we, we've accomplished a lot in a short period of time, but it all comes from a background of energy and understanding it. Hmm. Just to set the, there was something there I thought was contradictory. Did you say your top five, initially you said you're, you want to be top five in terms of hash rate, but you're currently at three? Yeah, our goal was to be top five. We, oh, your goal was. We reached, yeah, we, we reached the top five, I think about April of this year. We're kind of, like I said, we're, we're bouncing back and forth between three mm-hmm. and four. I expect that we'll probably be in the number three spot solidly, you know, sometime in the next quarter. And then, you know, we'll, we'll go from there and see where, where things go. So previously, when you were not thinking about Bitcoin at all at CleanSpark, the business was publicly traded. You've already had an established revenue model and customers and the whole culture of business is well established at that point. You were going in and selling cost savings. Was that, were you subcontracting out the components to move companies to solar or solar or what what was the like specific playbook that was utilized to provide those savings? Yeah, so we we had a software that would basically help people interact with the grid in a market driven approach. So basically, use solar power when it's cheaper to use solar pan- power versus the grid. But when it was cheap power on the grid, it would take that solar power or whatever the other generation source may be and put it in a battery, store it for later. So it was a basic energy arbitrage system. Our proprietary piece of it was software. And then we were using third-party components for everything else. And so we, we could provide a turnkey system, but it was really, we were like our ultimate driver. We were selling the brains behind how to energy arbitrage, you know, for your facility or your home or whatever it may be. Got it. Okay, so the people would install a piece of software would they be installing it locally on some hardware device and it would run inside of a home or a large building? Yeah. So we would have a, you know, it was almost a server within there. It would be local. It would also be cloud connected. 
That way, a lot of information come in the cloud to be digested and then sent down to, you know, make decisions real time. But yeah, so you would need physical components to make it all happen. And so, which is what, you know, we saw a easy intersection with Bitcoin because you can make a choice to send power to a battery or when to use grid power or when to not use grid power. You can do the same thing with, with a Bitcoin miner. And so that, that was kind of the aha moment. We, of course are grid connected and we arbitrage in a different way, which is all about, you know, the difference between where difficulty and Bitcoin prices and, you know, power, it all comes together. It's what we can produce as Bitcoin as becomes our off, you know, what, what's produced at the end. And so we just look at it differently. And again, our goal is hopefully to run 24, seven, 365, but sometimes it's better to skip a few hours here and there to not be up. And that's the benefit of being a Bitcoin miner is to kind of arbitrage against it to increase profitability for when you are mining. Mm. And what's the distribution of power generation now for the Bitcoin miners? You know, for our sites, so we, we have four sites and we also have uh, an operations that we, we co-locate with CoinMint up in New York. We're a grid connected for all of our sites. So we don't do actually on-site production currently. We do have plans at one of our sites to add some solar and that will ultimately add to it, but we'll still always be grid connected. We actually think that's an important part of being a miner is you can increase grid, the grid's general health, I would say, by balancing the load for the entire system. And so, but we specifically target Georgia. So we have four, four locations in Georgia and we targeted Georgia because it has a lot of nuclear power out there. So it was important. Of course, we have a renewable energy background. We continue to drive towards carbon emissions is what we think the critical piece is. There's a lot of debate on, you know, whether nuclear is renewable, whether it's not renewable, but we think the critical piece is whether it has emissions. There's no carbon emissions that come from it. And that allows us to run our sites at over 90% carbon free at the base load source. And we think that's incredibly important. Obviously, that's a big talking point going on right now. And we, you know, a, a big driver that we have is you can either choose to be governed or self-governed. And we always want to be in a position to re retain our ability to self-govern. We, we think taking the high road on this issue, it now makes it so you don't have to convince as many people of pros and cons for Bitcoin, because ultimately that's what we want, whether it's Bitcoin or any type of coin, right? You want to attract users and, you know, believers in it. And we think that taking the high road, it kind of, it, it answers the energy question directly. So that, that's our goal too, is, you know, we want to prove that Bitcoin can be done in a carbon free manner. And, and that, that's really what we've set out to do. Mm. Interesting. I want to ask you a little bit about nuclear. Do you think that the typical, re the, the typical reason why I hear nuclear not being more seriously discussed or the plants actually being built, at least in the United States, is that there's just too much political opposition? And I wonder what that, if you were to peel back that onion a little bit, is that is, is there really just such a large contingent of people that do not believe the technology is technically safe enough to deploy at scale? Or do you think there is more of a consolidation of political opposition, say in the form of, I'm just, I don't even know, what would it be like grid providers or solar companies or like, is there a, a more strategic opposition to getting nuclear built or is it just people don't understand and slash think it's safe to develop? 
Yeah, I think it's fear-based. I, I really yeah. would, would, you know, lean into that as being the answer. From a political point of view, there's, there's a lot of, you know, issues. You, you go back 30, 40 years and there were some real problems. You know, there were meltdowns, there was Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. And it created a narrative that nuclear can be scary, that it can have problems. You even look at what happened in Japan, you know, a few years ago, where, you know, that, that system, you know, with the tsunami and everything that mm-hmm. happened there. But when you really break down nuclear power, what it is, is it's a very large and consistent baseload that's always there. It can be done very, very safely. You know, frankly, safer, you know, when you look at all aspects of it than, than a lot of other sources can be. But I think that there's fear, there's education that's needed. And then it takes a long time to get these things built. And, you know, they're notorious for going over budget, which I think is a whole like government budgeting problem more than it's, you know, anything that takes decades that's a government project is going to go over budget, right? So really interesting things happening in the space, though, where people are aiming to build smaller nuclear power plants. So instead of these, you know, mega plants, they're looking to build smaller ones in, in you know, more spread out. Which is definitely something that, that that could be done. But I think what we're going to see, in, in my opinion, is we need about 30% more power to support electric vehicles if we're going to actually make that transition. And, you know, that that is power that doesn't exist today. If you took all the power that's being created and you just pushed it to electric vehicles, we, we just wouldn't have enough. Yeah. And so I think one of the only ways we're going to get there is through large generation. And it's got to be a generation that is up when intermittent renewables are historically down. So think of the solar and the wind, which is at night. You go home, you plug your car in. Well, the sun goes down and you're plugging your car in still. All that power has to come from somewhere. And if we want to find the cleanest way to do that, you know, I believe nuclear is probably the only path forward. Otherwise, we have to be more reliant on natural gas and other sources. And, you know, if, if the goals that, you know, as a world that we've set out to do to try and offset carbon emissions, you know, that, that really, to me, seems like the only path. Uh, Otherwise, we've got to do a lot of investing in batteries. Batteries are incredibly expensive, have some of their own issues, but all the minerals, the rare earth minerals that go into that, it, you now have geopolitical issues that have to be considered. And that's why I think over time, we're going to start to see more adoption of nuclear power plants. I think that, you know, also, you know, energy sovereignty is becoming a bigger issue with the current environment. You've seen what, you know, has happened over in Europe where nuclear plants that were about to be shut down are being brought back up. So I, I think that, I think that there is good tailwinds for nuclear power. Mm. And it just, you know, people have to keep those tailwinds going. But I, I think it's going to become a more commonplace discussion that, that's yeah. out there. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like you can mitigate it by having it be farther apart and smaller. And also just emphasizing the advancement in technology since these plants were built. I mean, when was that plant built in Georgia? Probably in the, I'm guessing, the 80s, right? Just- They're actually finishing one right now. So... Yeah, yeah. So the 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 Vogel plants is what they're they're known as. The the third one will be going up sometime inside the next twelve months, which is great for us because that's more power, more abundant power going into the region we operate in. Which hopefully, you know, it's again it's a it's a case study for why Bitcoin miners are needed because all that power is going to come on grid, 
And we're going to be there to be a flexible load against it. So even now, but I, I spoke with somebody that worked for the Public Utilities Commission in Georgia, and they mentioned that they thought this might be the last nuclear power plant built in their lifetime because of political headwinds. And this was about a year ago. And I think even in just one year, we're seeing some of the political climate change. So hopefully those headwinds will slow down and the tailwinds will keep going. But yeah, they're, they're being built right now. But, you know, th- it, th- this could be the last one for 20 years unless, you know, we start thinking ahead. And th- that's that I think has been one of those those problems is there was a lot of lobbying against nuclear power in the late 80s, early 90s. Everybody was afraid of of what that would be. And I think we're looking back now and wishing that instead it had been the opposite. You know, right now we could be sitting in a completely different energy environment in, in how we produce energy in this country. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Mm. And tell me a little bit more about the transmission. So if there were, clearly people are most resistant to nuclear power plants being built physically close to where they are. If the plants are built far away, say hundreds of miles or even a thousand miles away, is energy transmission feasible at very large distances? Like I, I researched at some point kind of super cooled energy lines or like, what are we losing in terms of percentage transmission from origination if it's going, you know, super long distances? It, it's a fairly significant loss. Mm-hmm. That, that's why it does make sense to not have it be hugely far apart. But what we, we have gotten better at trans, transmitting power. But the, the energy loss loads are significant, you know, but it's the same problem. Even if you generate power nearby and you put it through a battery, that round trip cycle in energy, you can lose as much as 20% through a battery by the time it you know, comes back out in a usable way. And so you have all these losses and loads. And, I, and that's just something that's a problem with a macro grid where we have this huge interconnected grid. That's why as a company, our focus before was on microgrids. The, the best way to 
really manage power is to generate, store, and consume in, in as small an area as you can yeah. and in as, as effective way as you can. So we, we lose power all the way from, you know, the second it's generated, all the transmission losses, then you have step down losses as you bring it into usable voltages from the super high voltage that it gets transported at. So it's definitely not, you know, our, our grid has a lot of fragile points to it. And I think that, you know, from an infrastructure point of view, that's something that a, a huge amount of investment really does need to go into in in every in any any country that has a large scale grid especially one that has been built over the last 70 years like ours in in most cases there's a lot of investment that needs to go in to really build those back up to you know make them more reliable and do you think that kind of investment is when you actually peel it back is it like a, a band-aid on these existing systems or it, does it make sense to i mean are they ripping out significant parts of the grid because it just seems more unreliable and more you know, incompetent the, the the more the years go by like the fact that they're shutting down power because of fear of forest fires just feels like an exemplar of what is like tragically wrong with either the infrastructure or the philosophy of, of, of utilizing this energy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think that there is a lot of band-aiding going on. And then unfortunately some of the band-aids that are going on is because a lack of investment over the last 30 years. So <laughs> when I say investment, it's gotta be true, meaningful changes happening in the grid, not just replacing aging infrastructure. Because the aging infrastructure is only part of it. These, these systems and the way they were designed, we now use power in a completely different way than people did 20 years ago or even probably 10 years ago. So, you know, look at all the different electronics we have that we didn't have, when we use it, how we use it. You know, even streaming services that we, you know, you go home, you turn on Netflix when you get back, when you get home or whatever it may be. The amount of people that are doing that is having a meaningful change in the amount of power being used in different mm. places. So it's, it's these small things, but when they're compounded by mass adoptions of, of what we do and how we live our lives, you need to make sure the grid is resilient enough and flexible enough to manage that. You know, electric vehicles, I think, are just the easiest example because some extremely high goals have been set in this country to transition over to, to electric vehicles. But, you know, if you lived in California two months ago, you would have gotten a notice that said, hey, you know, this evening, don't plug in your electric vehicle because we don't have enough power to go around and to avoid brownouts. So if you were, you know, but if you rely on that vehicle to get to work the next day, you don't really have a choice. You have to plug in the vehicle. So we, we as human beings will never conserve ourselves into a better future. You know, we've always been creatures that invest in growth. And if we can continue to invest in the growth rather than push people into the need to conserve, what well, we're going to thrive much better than just survive. And, and I think that that's the key is, is we have to approach everything with energy, with a need for abundance. We, we have to have abundant energy. And again, it's kind of circle, you know, go full circle on this. I truly think that, you know, proof of work mining, Bitcoin mining is the answer to that because you have this industry that wants to consume a large amount of power, whereas can reliably pay for that power, raise, raises their hands and says, I will invest in infrastructure. You know, Bitcoin miners are building and, and creating opportunity for infrastructure to be built in the, the electrical system. 
in a way that we haven't done for decades in this country. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So Ethereum just went through a major change recently, moving from proof of work to proof of stake. And much has been discussed about their change and Bitcoin staying strong on proof of work. There also seems to be kind of high level political misunderstanding about the purpose of the energy consumption, often viewed critically that Bitcoin is just, you know, consuming excess energy and contributing more to the problems we already have of energy consumption and emissions. Certainly from one lens, that is true. You know, by using Bitcoin, it certainly consumes more energy than it would if you were to use a credit card, I believe, or any other bank transfer. But the infrastructure needed to maintain the bank itself to be able to make that transfer is often what doesn't get encapsulated by that statement. Do you view the consumption of energy as like a critical aspect to the success of interdependence or decentralization of of uh, mon- monetary supply? Or how do you just view the the construct of proof of work within the broader ecosystem of crypto? Like, is it yeah. Is it necessary? How do you view the which coins it would be necessary for? Would it be feasible for Bitcoin to decrease consumption, move to proof of stake, or is that just a massive, uh, yeah, obvious flaw? No, I I think that proof of work for Bitcoin, and I'm I'm going to narrow this down just to to, to Bitcoin for a minute. Mm-hmm. It's a feature and not a you know proof of work involves the need to put forth effort enough effort that it's meaningful, right? So think of all the energy we use, the investment we use, the capital that's being put in, all of that ultimately goes to secure the blockchain. Because if it was easy to do, then, you know, the security goes down. So feature not a flaw, really proof of work is the only real way and that has been fully proven out to secure a fully and truly decentralized blockchain. And what I mean by that too is, you know, Bitcoin is one of the only coins that doesn't have a CEO. You know, there, there is no company that oversees it or makes decisions. Yes, there's a community of people and developers and things like that. But, you know, if you look at Ethereum, though, I think it actually made sense for the merge to go through. Mm-hmm. Because we have to look at what Ethereum is. Ethereum is a platform, it, whereas Bitcoin is, you know, trying to be a currency. Or is, I shouldn't say trying to be. Is, you know, a digital currency that's decentralized and secure. What the merge did is it took a platform, like, and in, in, in the way the platform is structured is people can make decisions on it. And it became a lot, it really isn't decentralized now. You know, staking put power in a fairly small number of people's hands. You know, you know, proof of work for Bitcoin is a feature and not a flaw. It's the only proven way that we can truly secure a, a decentralized digital currency. And, you know, I look at Ethereum and the merge mate set, you know, Ethereum is really more of a platform. It is something that builders build on and all of these building blocks or all these different, you know, blockchains that come off of it, they have different utilities and different purposes. So it would be like, you know, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but if you look at Ethereum like a platform, almost like you look at, you know, Apple. The, the iOS, it wouldn't make sense to run the app store, you know, on something that takes proof of work and a huge amount of energy. You don't need the same systems behind it. 
Now, it does mean that, you know, now that it's merged, that security needs to be incredibly important for everyone that is staking. And they, you know, it's now up to them to live up to a, a standard where trust can be gained by users of Ethereum and the platforms that build on it. And that is what's so great about Bitcoin is because it is a currency and it is something where people are taking and storing their value, you know, you need to not have to rely on somebody. You need to have a trust, you know, a trustless system that doesn't involve a person in the middle. Instead, you are trusting the blockchain. And if you're going to trust the blockchain, it makes sense to have proof of work be what stands behind it as the most proven way to be able to create that security. So I think that rather than trying to point and say, hey, one is better than the other, I think that the most important thing is to acknowledge them as different. And once you acknowledge them as different, needing different security, needing different purposes of use, then they both work side by side. They work for different reasons and purposes in the digital ecosystem. Mm. Do you see any scenario where if, say, you fast forward on nuclear, there's nuclear plant generation happening all over the world. Energy is is almost thought of like water today where it's, it's like quasi-free. You know, you have to be in the right place to get it, but it's like, you know, it's maybe a couple of cents per month that people pay for their energy use. Do you see that presenting a dramatic change in Bitcoin mining? Like if that reality were true, how would that affect your business and then Bitcoin miners at large? You know, I, I think it would, it would affect, you know, it would definitely affect the, the industry. Now, clearly, I think that the key is context on this. So if it takes, let's say, 20 years to, to get to that point, right? During that 20 years, obviously, there kind of would be a kind of step-by-step -step change. And the benefit is you'd see power become cheaper, which, of course, potentially attracts new entrants, though. But what we have seen, I think that scale will matter long-term. So if a Bitcoin miner like ourselves, who, you know, we use well over 100 megawatts of power, has all the infrastructure behind it, that takes an immense amount of capital. So now if barriers of entry to actual, you know, utilization of the mining equipment is lower because power costs are, are lower, I, I think that what you, you would find, though, is at that point in time, because we're now talking about 20 years in the future, miners will have reached such scale that, you know, new entrants won't be really that much of a threat to established players. But the good thing is, is it would create opportunities for new players. It's just going to, it may take you two decades to catch up with scale, right? So I, I think it just creates more opportunity. And the good thing about that is that, you know, whether you're running a megawatt or a hundred megawatt, anybody can get into it. And the more participants in it, the more decentralized. So it ends up being all the better. So there may still be some big players out there that have large scale, but I think do think that if power prices were to come lower, it attracts a lot of guys running one megawatt, you know, two megawatts, you know, in their, in their shop, out back even, or whatever that looks like in 20 years. And again, more participants is better for the blockchain. So I, I think rather than a challenge, it creates an opportunity for greater security. And how, what about on the technology side for the actual machines? Is there a tremendous amount of competition and, and sort of te like technological race happening? on the actual hardware, or is it really more a game of energy productions? No, it's, it's both, and I think neither can be overlooked. So, you know, ASICs have reached what, you know, is likely a critical point at the five nanometer chip. 
you know, the, the thing about microchips is, you know, that's that, that measurement is the measurement between the circuits. And so if we increase it down to three nanometers, one of the things you, you now have a harder and harder time with is yes, the circuits may be smaller, maybe they're quicker, but heat, you, you, you know, getting rid of heat is still going to always be an issue. And th there's a point with these chips where, you know, the circuits actually start to lay on top of each other, the, the way the distances work in the chips. And again, you, so it, we've reached this critical point specifically for, you know, ASICs and miners that heat is, is really going to be the limiting because jamming more chips inside the same space, you know, it, it, it the same efficiencies is, is going to be kind of the same thing. So I think we've reached a point and, and the industry starting to acknowledge this is look for different ways to manage heat transfer. So erosion cooling is of course, kind of the obvious next step. So I think that the current generation, latest generation miners, they probably have as long a life as, you know, any miner has, has ever had for the next future. So we're thinking a good solid five-year life. The S9 was the last one that had that good of a, a life and resiliency, but that, you know, came down to obviously now we have much stronger machines, much more efficient machines. I think immersion cooling, the good thing is it will not only lead to new technologies being developed that will be better, faster, more efficient, but it will also breathe new life into some of the older generation machines too, because now you can push them a little harder and get the heat transfer to, you know, up their performance a bit more. So I think there's a lot of innovation to happen, but I do think we've reached a critical point on the chips, actually down at the chip level, that we're going to start to see at least some slowing of the development until, you know, the next problem can be solved. So in comparison to say like consumer electronics, like your iPhone, your, your, your watch, your iPad, your computer, you really don't need to move the Bitcoin miners, right? I mean, you can basically size and weight is not a factor, I would have, to, to a large degree. So is, is the nanometer advancement game that relevant or is it really about cooling and and the inputs there so input would be you obviously have your energy going in to to you know power these machines but then you also have the computational power of those machines so is it is the basic equation like energy in times computational power equals money out in terms of bitcoin hash rate i mean what are like the most simple first principles you boil it down to? Yeah, no, I, I think you pretty much nailed it on, on the head. It's really, you know, energy in, then the efficiency of that energy, right? Mm. But that efficiency ultimately, you know, turns into how many, you know, watts or joules per hash that comes out. And if you can make that more efficient, then you do have a better performing ASIC. There's a lot that goes on in between, but that's really the end goal. And now, now a key part of that though is, do you have to add any artificial cooling to the system or can you air cool it, right? Most efficient way to cool, or the most effective way from an efficiency point of view is generally thought to be air, right? If you're using a system, think of it as a chiller, like a traditional data center, or if you're using air conditioning or you have to do other inputs to add cool air, even immersion cooling, right? You're adding another input through a pump that uses its own electricity. So it's like you have to subtract off of the equation and say, hey, if for every hundred rocks going in, I have to send two or three this way, 
then that counts against you, right? So, so that, that's the balancing effect that you have to put in. So, so, but really that's exact, it's as simple as that energy in, cash rate out, how much Bitcoin does it produce? And that's how you measure profitability. And, and is there a lot of technical specification, a lot of, are there companies that are making equipment that is specifically geared towards Bitcoin mining? Like Bitcoin miners, maybe help me fill in my gaps here, but they're really just solving a, a specific mathematical problem for the, for the Bitcoin blockchain. And they're not doing everything else that people use computers for. So is there a lot of specific evolution or development for computers solving this one problem? And is that becoming like if, you know, when you guys go and, and buy miners, will you kind of have to go to a couple different producers of these machines? Yeah, there's actually, you know, a, a fairly small number that truly produced the, so the chips they use application specifics that that's what they're built for. They are built to, mm. to you know, solve these equations and, and the reason we're pushing so much hash rate is it's a little bit of a brute force method. You're just doing a lot of it. And so really you have, you know, Bitmain, you have MicroBT and you have Kanong. You know, those are kind of the big three. There are, you know, a few startups, a few different people trying to do it on their own. Intel has, has thrown their hat in the and there's some people trying to do some stuff there. But again, you know, the chips are the only one part of the equation and the box that they fit in that handles the, you know, the cooling and things like that is kind of the second piece. But, you know, outside of those three to, you know, with Intel being a, a new four, that's, that's who produces these miners for, for Bitcoin mining. So yes, it, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a limited subset of manufacturers that do create a very specific server for a very specific purpose. Zach, one more thing I want to ask you about, I mean, there's a few, few different things, but one that comes to mind is there's, as Bitcoin grows and decentralization of currency grows, people understand it, they trust it. As the U.S. government in particular seems to print a tremendous amount of money and debt soars collectively, there seems to be a impeding collision between BTC and USD, where as the government wants to continue to maintain control over monetary supply, particularly internationally, they print more money. People internationally are you know, not benefiting from the additional inflation that they're receiving on their U.S. dollar that they're holding. So it puts pressure and it seems likely that eventually U.S. dollar will not become, will not be the recognized global reserve currency. Possibly BTC becomes that reserve. Maybe it's something else. But when if and when the politicians in, in power in the U.S. federal system, they just call it like Senate, Congress, et cetera, that can make laws. If they were to enact a policy that really goes head to head against Bitcoin with, this, with the kind of you know, narrative of Bitcoin threatens national security, right? Because it's undermining our ability to control monetary policy. People are fleeing U.S. dollar, inflation becomes hyperinflation, becomes, you know, just a runaway train. I, I could see it happening where, you know, it flips the script and then all of a sudden there's just like a war on BTC, stop the, stop the, you know, the, the people fleeing into, into Bitcoin. If that were to happen, what do you think the primary levers of the, of the government would be? Like, where are the choke points in the, in the Bitcoin ecosystem, so to speak. 
Yeah, you know that that's a really interesting question, and there's definitely a lot of different ways that that, that we could look at this. You know, and I I think the first and foremost thing is you know optimally, it's you know I I I don't always want to refer back to this, but like optimally we're better than that, right? So you know we, we don't want to be reliant on just being you know hopefully everybody's better than that, but like constitutionally I think there's a hundred problems that would would come into play to basically bar citizens of the U.S. from, you know, investing in an asset. There, there's, there's a lot of problems that, that, that come with that. Wait, can I, can so I pause you real quick? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Just to, just to throw one thing, because it's so recent, yeah. is the, 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 the sanctions from the, uh, the, the U.S. sanctions recently on, what is it? Oh, God, what was that coin? There was a there was a yeah it, it was like a pass through yeah right, right? yeah it was, where it was it was it was a, it was a bridge coin where they were doing exchanges yeah yeah it was a completely encrypted protocol but it was the first time that a protocol in not a company but a protocol was sanctioned so you couldn't you so coinbase took it down i'll have to i'll find the name of it and include it but it was like oh wow that's possible that's legal so continue on but i just want to throw that out there yeah, yeah, no, and and you're you're really you know valid to that point. Now, I I I think there's some differences in how the protocol was set up and run and managed that you know I think led to maybe some cracks that were then targeted for for that reason. But yeah, it's it's I I actually think that the levers that would be sought out would probably be different levers. It would be you know efforts to undermine it in a indirect way. So because again, if you can convince people to lose interest in it or to not support it, that's probably an easier path for any government to to go through, especially when you look at what happened in China, where it was, you know, outright banned. Mm-hmm. You know, there's two things on that case study. One, based on all the data that, that surfaces, it doesn't appear that it was effective as, as maybe it was thought to be. But, but two, you know, it was the example of what you know, a dictator does. So I think that it would look very bad for somebody here to to, to try and take that stance. You know, I, I think that we're, we're seeing a little bit of an attack on it already in the form of, you know, pointing to the energy and saying, oh, the energy used, you know, we, if, if you look at Bitcoin and the utility for it, you know, I think that me and, you know, most of your listeners would probably agree that there's a fair trade-off for that. You know, and and part of it's because it's so easy to measure. So I think that that's kind of the easy attack point. You know, the the question that I would ask is the counterpoint to that is, as a society, we've decided that apparently hosting selfies is worth the trade off. You know, how often do you hear about Facebook launching a new two hundred megawatt or a six hundred megawatt data center in a state, usually partially subsidized by taxpayer dollars? But you know, as part of that. I think that we we have a critical weak point that's part of the benefit of Bitcoin. And that's, you can kind of do some math and you can say, well, there's this much half rate. And based on, you know, what it currently takes in computational power, you can kind of back into the number of how much power is being used. It's an unfair measurement because you can't measure how much banks are using, how much the, you know, all the trucks moving cash are using or what the printers are using. All of those pieces together, you know, form a much harder an energy equation to understand. So it's kind of the weak point to also, again, the benefit. So I, I think that that's probably where, unfortunately, if a government wanted to, you know, push back on Bitcoin, I think that's probably where they would look. And I think that's why it's important that, you know, Bitcoin mining is an industry 
takes the high road and focuses on using, you know, excess power, using carbon-free power, you know, making sure that they have really good community relations. The communities we operate in, we've been welcomed into those communities because we're providing, you know, real revenue to the city in the form, you know, almost all the cities we operate in, the utility is owned by the city. So there's great revenue for the city. It provides tax base. It provides, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think being a really good corporate citizen is the best defense of any sort of attack. Because I do think mining and proof of work is probably the point of attack that, you know, a government would take. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mm, yeah, probably implementing some sort of tax uh, on this, you know, like a 30% crypto tax or something because of the, you know, Save the Planet initiative. Yeah, I mean, look, my thought is if we're Foolish enough to not see the writing on the wall and the general trajectory that we need to take with nuclear power, which seems so clear, then anything, quite frankly, could be is possible in terms of poor decisions. I mean, there's yeah. it just seems like I'm constantly impressed with how 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 badly we make decisions in this country in some areas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we make great decisions in other areas, but it's just it's always surprising. I want to kind of double click on one thing you mentioned earlier about how the Bitcoin miners are good for the grid. So. When you come into a grid like Georgia, they're on nuclear, but I'm sure they're a composite of many other energy sources as well. Are they supportive of the load because of the time of day the load is on? And, and why is a load important to a grid? So, so on a grid, you always have to be in balance. You have to balance you know, generation with consumption. And if you're ever out of balance, you have to either reduce generation, which means that, you know, next time you walk over to the light switch, there may or may not be enough power to flip that on. Or you also have to send the power to ground if it's not going to be consumed somewhere. Mm. So a big part of the cost of any grid is actually keeping it in balance, keeping it in phase. And it's something that is a constant process to do. And so how Bitcoin miners can strengthen it is both in that manner where we, like we, we schedule closely with utilities. They know when we're going to be up, when we're going to be down, but also financially. So, you know, if you're a generator, let's say you're generating power, you want to sell everything you can and you don't want to have to ramp down and ramp up because all, every time you ramp up or down, it also costs you a little bit of money to make those changes, right? Depending on where your inputs are. And again, I'm grouping in generation as a very broad you know, concept, whether it's natural gas or nuclear. Nuclear, <clears throat> excuse me, is there all the time. Mm -hmm. And so financially, a utility likes to have somebody there ready to consume it. And that way, they, they need something very predictable. Because one thing nuclear is not, it's, it's not as flexible as everything else. But because the grid works together, Georgia actually has it, uh, the seven state out of the 50 for the most solar. There's actually a lot of solar coming into that grid. And so that's very intermittent. You can just basically draw a bell curve, you know, as the sun comes up and it goes down. 
So they want to know that, hey, there's someone always buying the base. They can then monetize that curve. And there's really, they try and minimize waste. You know, waste in a grid in general, they're already dealing enough with a loss. The enough losses is, is things get transferred. But, you know, cost-effective grids will stay in balance, stay as flat as possible without a lot of, you know, big changes that were unexpected. Also, big changes that are unexpected on large grid infrastructure, you know, breakers and equipment, they lessen their life. So we can help make that a lot smoother for everybody. But then the benefit is if you get a hurricane like what just happened in Florida, which also blew through part of Georgia. Well, we were in communication with the cities that we operate in and we were basically on notice and we were ready to do so that if there became a grid emergency or uh, there wasn't enough power to go around, our load could go away and all that power could come back to the grid to be spread amongst, you know, people's homes. But also, you know, taking it a step further, every grid operator has, has a goal for their community. And right now those goals generally tend to be to, you know, have more carbon-free power. So actually our purchasing power coming into one of the cities has allowed them, they were able to reduce their reliance on any coal a year ahead of schedule. So they were already in the process. Our dollars came in, allowed them to make additional purchases. So now they exited coal. So they can now tell their citizens, which they're very proud of, that they don't have a reliance on coal. So it does actually help for, you know, a cleaner grid, a more reliable grid, you know, a less costly grid. And all of that can be accomplished because our load is flexible. We can be there when we need to be. We can come down, but also we're, we're, we're flat. You know, we don't go up and down. We don't have big pieces of machinery coming off and on. All of that goes to the general benefit of the larger grid. Mm. Is there any sort of collective amongst the largest Bitcoin miners out there to identify what would be the, the weak points? Like, you know, if a hurricane goes through the metropolis you're operating in and you close down, if that were also true in other areas, like, you know, is there, give me a sense of the type of communication or resiliency that's anticipated amongst, you know, the largest, maybe five or 10 Bitcoin miners out there? Mm -hmm. No, the, the, the largest miners, we kind of operate in slightly different geographic areas. And because grids are so geographic dependent, mm -hmm. there's generally though, I, uh, all of them that are large, they are working directly with their grid providers in some way, whether it's ERCOT, right? There's lots of headlines about everything going on out there. And there's two or three really large miners out there. And ERCOT is probably the most fragile grid inside our, our country, but it also is the most dynamic grid from a market-based condition. So there's lots of ways to, to monetize and measure the grid and, and how it behaves. And so Bitcoin miners have an opportunity to be a really big tool in the, the grid's toolkit. Where, and, and kind of in a different scale, there's a very robust grid in Georgia, very healthy, lots of abundant power. So it's actually a little bit more of a, hey, how do we, how does the grid operator benefit the most financially and then pass on those savings? So most of the grid operators we operate with are nonprofits. And so really the savings ultimately get passed down to the end users. So when we're soaking up, power that they know they can sell that they don't have to make up for everybody's power can get cheaper so uh, you know we're, we're bringing the community right now but that's one of our goals into the next year 
is to establish power purchasing in such a way that will ultimately reduce everybody's power bill in the community. So it's, it's a goal we have. It's something we're working towards and hopefully it will be a great case study by the time we finish up next year. Yeah. Super interesting. Um, any other thoughts on either the regulation required to move us forward, either on grills, not grills, the, the grid, the, you know, we talked about nuclear, it, it seemed pretty on, on the same page there with, with allowing that to happen. Do you see any other like major frustrating behind the scenes sort of industry insider blocks that are in place that most people maybe wouldn't appreciate? You know, the, the grid piece in particular is a state level issue. So I think that though we, we have to do a lot of educating nationwide. One thing that I think could be a blocker is a lot of educating is happening only locally. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to spread that out and do more than just what we're doing in Georgia. Because if you have one state, New York is kind of the example, right? Where a position was taken that, you know, we believe is unfounded and just more education is needed, but it then makes it really easy for other states to not research the issue themselves and just point to New York mm -hmm. and say, well, New York's going to, you know, ban new Bitcoin mining that we don't want anything to do with it either. Right. And so we think there's a few dominoes that have to be protected and watched out for. So we think a lot of educating needs to be done. You know, I had a great opportunity to meet with five different governors a few weeks ago in a round table. And the round table, the governors that happened to be there, they were very open-minded and willing to say, hey, we don't understand it and we would like to. It was purely educational discussion. And I think that discussions like that are incredibly critical because I think that because it is a state issue, if, if the people that are responsible for running any state can understand the benefits and instead of just reading headlines, you know, about large energy use, I think it goes a really long way. So I think really kind of a grassroots effort is needed around the energy discussion, which I think will spread, you know, to a more national discussion. I do think that the commodities versus securities thing is probably one of the most critical issues that needs to be handled for all coins right now. You know, Bitcoin, it seems, is being clearly put in the commodities bucket. But it kind of leaves a lot of question marks about everything, which I won't get, you know, into because I think that's a, that's a whole hour by itself. But I think that that's a critical piece because the exchanges need to know what they can and can't do. Because I think regulation by enforcement is one of the most damaging things to a developing industry or a developing technology that, that, that could happen. So I really think that like some answers are owed to an industry that's working very hard to better itself and shouldn't be felt to just be caught out when everybody's trying to do the best they can. Yeah, totally agree. How has stoicism played a role? And if there's any books or authors in particular that come to mind as having influenced your thoughts? Oh man, yeah. I, you know, I, I have to point to, you know, Marcus Aurelius, you know, and, and Ryan Holiday has a lot of great books too. But, you know, stoicism ha is, is how I always try to, you know, take my view on the world. So, you know, I, Right now, I, I, I can't, which coin do I have in my pocket right now? But I actually always carry around a, a stoic coin. I've got eight different ones of them that I carry, but, but, uh, you know, Amar Fati is, is the coin I have in my, my pocket today. It's just, you know, it really means to, you know, accept what you have, but and like really take root in it and, and embrace it. And I think that's what's led to, you know, our success, you know, right now we're, you know, we haven't even gotten into it, which is great to have a conversation and not talk about the bear market. 
But I think that's what's been huge for, for us and, and how I've been leading the company is embracing the bear market. You know, we, you know, believe in acting and, and I think stoicism drives this for me, but strategy over ideology. You know, there's a lot of ideology that exists where people double down on, you know, kind of maximalism on certain things. And I think that it's a lot more prudent just to accept the now that you're in. You know, we, we've, you know, always been sellers of the coins we mine. We've only kept about 20% of what we mined on, on the balance sheet. Because we, we are believers, but we also believe we have a responsibility to run a business. That, of course, worked out well for us as we, you know, were capitally responsive through the up and the down and led to where we are today. And, and I think that that's probably the, the biggest thing that stoicism has done for me most recently is, you know, we've been doing acquisitions in the bear market. You know, we believe in Bitcoin. We believe in what we're doing. And that means that you have to, though, accept what the reality you have and operate the best. We've been very successful, I, I believe, it, for, for bear market conditions. And, you know, we think this is the, the time for building. But I think the right frame of mind is what's necessary to, to make that happen. So, yeah, I, for, for, you know, I could go into it a lot longer, but, you know, I think that's the root of it. You know, stoicism leads the way I approach, you know, every day. And, and you knowing, you know, t t today could be the last and having a good time with it and just pushing forward. Mm, I love that. Zach, this is a lot of fun, man. Thanks so much. Are you actively writing or tweeting anything personally you want to include here? Here. You know, it, yes. Yeah. You, you can find me on, on Twitter, Zach K. Bradford. And, you know, that, that's usually why I put things out there. So, you know, I, I, I am writing a little bit more on the side, but uh, I'm on Twitter occasionally and I like, like to share a few opinions. So thanks for giving the shout out. Thank you, man. This is a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.